The reading today is from Exodus chapter 14, some verses 5 to 7 and 10 to 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed towards the people. And they said, what have we done, letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll see never again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to keep still. Amen. The second reading is again from Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at dawn, the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Amen. Thank you, Hazel. Well, you may have gathered from the hymn choices that today is that Sunday in the church year, uh, which we designate Harvest Sunday. And I have to say, finding a meaningful way to celebrate harvest in the center of one of the world's global cities 
can be a bit of a tough assignment. I mean, I know we're technically in the parish of St Giles in the Fields, but the reality is that it's been a few centuries since anyone gathered in the sheaves around here. But this doesn't mean, of course, that we are cut off from harvests. Everything we eat, the very things that keep us alive, are the produce of harvest. Someone, somewhere, harvested the grain that makes up the bread, we will share shortly. Someone harvested those grapes that produced the, well, not wine, uh, that we will drink together. Just because it doesn't happen right here anymore, doesn't stop us being deeply, intimately and existentially connected to harvests around the world. Harvests which, through the complexities of global supply chains, help keep our cupboards stocked and our stomachs full. But of course, such mechanisms of global supply are fragile, and it doesn't take much to disrupt them. One of the impacts of the invasion of Ukraine has been that this now war-torn country, often called the breadbasket of Europe, is no longer able to send as much of its grain to market. The consequential rise in food staples has been a significant contributor to the rise in the cost of living that we're seeing and which so many in our city are now struggling with. And another facet of the globalised uh, food supply has been the almost ubiquitous practices of exploitative farming. From the exploitation of farmers themselves in the two-thirds world who are forced to work for subsistence incomes or less, to the exploitation of the land through intensive farming and habitat destruction, harvest is also a justice issue. And it is an issue of global justice. From those who live in poverty in our own country, unable to feed their own families, to the ways the wealthy empires of the West exploit and oppress the poor in other parts of the world, to deforestation in the Amazon basin, there is a deep injustice built into the economics and practices of harvest. And my question for us this morning is what does God say about such injustices? And what would God have us do? Well, as a way into this, I'd like to spend a few minutes thinking about the hymn we sang at the beginning of the service. And then we'll turn our attention to the scripture passage and hear some insights from Israel's story of old. But first, the hymn. I'm sure you know it well. I've been singing it my whole life. I think I know it off by heart. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what it is we're really singing here. First verse. Come, you thankful people, come. Raise the song of harvest home, all securely gathered in, safe before the storms begin. God, our maker, will provide for our needs to be supplied. Come, with all God's people, come. Raise the song of harvest home. It's great. Starts quite innocently, doesn't it? 
a rural song of thanksgiving for a successful harvest. You can, you can just imagine the autumn sun shining on the grey stonework of a typical English village church. Farmers and their workers coming to worship at the end of another week of gathering the wheat into the barns. It's idyllic. But then we get to verse 2. All the world is God's own field, bearing fruit God's praise to yield, wheat and weeds together sown, unto joy or sorrow grown. First the blade and then the ear, then the full corn shall appear, Lord of harvest, grant that we wholesome grain and pure may be. Oh, things have changed gear a bit, haven't they? The writer of the hymn has introduced here Jesus's parable of the wheat and the weeds from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. Suddenly, we're no longer talking about the harvest of little snoring on the wold. We're talking about the great harvest of the whole earth. A vision of God's judgment being enacted against all that is unfruitful, all that is unjust, all that is exploitative, all that is wicked. And so the verse ends, perhaps understandably, with a little prayer that our lives will be found pure and wholesome when they are judged by God. Lord of harvest, grant that we wholesome grain and pure may be. And then we get to verse three. For the Lord our God shall come and shall take the harvest home. From this field shall in that day all corruption purge away. Well, the judgment theme is intensifying, isn't it? There's a recognition that the world as it is, is not the world as it should be. Our world is one of corruption, of destructive weeds outcompeting the fruit of the kingdom of God. And there doesn't seem to be any earthly solution to this problem. And so the hymn prays to God, echoing again the words of Jesus's parable of the wheat and the weeds, Give the angels charge at last, in the fire the weeds to cast, but the fruitful ears to store in God's care forevermore. This hymn is now longing for a better world, for a world where the fruit of the Spirit are born unhindered, and where the weeds of injustice and oppression are burned away. And so we then get to that final verse. Even so, Lord, quickly come, bring your final harvest home. Gather all your people in, free from sorrow, free from sin. There, together, purified in your presence to abide. Come with all your angels, come. Raise the glorious harvest home. The local harvest with which we began, the idyllic rural village harvest, has become the harvest of the earth. And there's a recognition here that all of us, each of us, at a personal and not just at a corporate level, are a mixed bag of wheat and weeds. Ultimately, this hymn, as with the parable that it's based on, isn't a hymn about them and us. This is not, in the end, a hymn about the purification of society as God purges the sinners to redeem the righteous. Rather, in the end, it's about recognising that each of us needs purification. There are weeds in my life that need to be burned away. And I am sure there are weeds in all of our lives that need to be consigned to the fire that we may be purified.
the judgment of God becomes by the end of our hymn good news for all the earth because it is in the final analysis a vision of the freeing of humanity from all that oppresses from all that enslaves, from all that creates injustice, from all that destroys and diminishes life. The idealised and idyllic vision of the first verse becomes the goal and objective of the last verse. As the consequences of human sin are defeated and humans are freed from the weeds that would otherwise choke the life from our lives. And I think this is a message we need to hear today in our world. As people flock to political ideologies of exclusion and othering. In a world where foreigners, migrants, refugees and minorities are blamed and victimised. It's a message we need to hear in our world where the global food supply chains in which we are all complicit are exploitative of the vulnerable and the impoverished. It's a message we need to hear in our world where despots take what is not theirs and wreak violence upon the innocent. All of these, says our opening harvest hymn, stand under the judgment of God and the vision of a freed and renewed humanity is predicated on the burning away of such systems and symbols of oppression. Which brings us to the story of the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. As the people of Israel made their way from slavery in Egypt to begin their journey through the wilderness on their way to promised land. The image here in Exodus is not one of fire, it's of water, but it is in many ways the same image. People sometimes question this passage as depicting a violent God. It's a good question. But I think in the end it is a superficial reading of what's going on here. The people of Israel have become enslaved. Abraham's children went to Egypt fleeing a famine. They went as refugees seeking a new life. But as the generations went past, they became a feared and scapegoated minority, on whom could be blamed all of the ills of ancient Egyptian society. I can imagine some ancient Egyptian politician, some early version of Enoch Powell, predicting that if these Jewish immigrants are not controlled, there will be rivers of blood. And so Pharaoh took his stand and did what oppressive rulers and despots have done time and time again in human society and sought to oppress the minority. But also, as is so often the case, even to our own world, the empire's economy had become dependent on the exploitation of the minority. So whilst victimizing the minority was a populist move, it would also have been financially ruinous to obliterate them. You can write this down human history, can't you, to our present day. And so the cycle of oppression was created and it existed in ancient Egypt against the ancient Israelites. 
It existed at the time of Jesus as the Romans exploited the provinces of their empire and it exists in our world as the wealthy continue to exploit the poor and the vulnerable. But how can this cycle be broken? What does God say to such a world of exploitation? As we've already seen in our opening hymn, God stands firm against injustice. And sure enough, here in the story of the Exodus, God calls Moses to announce judgment on the empire of Egypt for its exploitation of the people of Israel. If only Pharaoh had listened to Moses, all the bloodshed that followed could have been avoided. The Nile turning to blood. The Red Sea running with blood. These rivers and seas of blood are created by the actions of the empire. In refusing to repent and turn away from its exploitation, and so I want to suggest that the plagues visited on Egypt and the destruction of their army in the Red Sea are problematic only if you read this story from the perspective of Egypt, from the perspective of the empire. Do you find yourself feeling sympathy for the firstborn? Empathy for the soldiers? I know I do. But then I also know that I am someone who is deeply complicit in the systems of imperial domination in our world. If I read myself back into this ancient story, I know that I'm an Egyptian. But those who identify with the enslaved people of Israel need feel no sympathy when the empire reaps the reward of its own violent oppression as that violence spirals back on it. It's no coincidence that the Exodus story featured so heavily in the language and hymnody of the enslaved Africans on the plantations of North America. It's no coincidence that the liberation theologians of Latin America turned again and again to the story of the Exodus as they reflected on their experience of oppression and domination. It's no coincidence that Martin Luther King wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail that freedom is never given voluntarily by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. There is no room here for sympathy for the oppressor. Because God has no sympathy for the oppressor. The Exodus story with the people of Israel crossing the waters that ensnared them to bring, begin their long journey to a better world is fundamentally a, a story of God's commitment to freedom. It is a story about God's commitment to emancipation and the judgment that is visited on the empire is everything that the empire deserves as it is burned away, washed away, as a direct consequence of the evil that it has done on the earth. The God of the Exodus is a liberating God, a God who is always for the oppressed and never for the oppressor. And every time, 
Every time an empire has claimed God's blessing as they have sought to dominate the world and oppress it to their own ends, every time it has emerged in human history that they have ultimately sowed the seeds of their own ultimate destruction. This is true from ancient Egypt to ancient Babylon to Rome. It is true from the domination of Christendom to the maritime empires of the colonial Europeans. And it is true for the financial empires of the global supply chains of our world and the exploitative despots of oppressive regimes that we read about in our news media. God is always on the side of the oppressed and never on the side of the oppressor. So whenever new pharaohs emerge in human history, grasping after power, even though their own people are destroyed in the process, God is always on the side of the enslaved. And I think the despotic rulers of our world could do with hearing this and hearing it clearly. But I also think that we who live in the West need to hear this and hear it clearly. And dare I say, I think our government could do with hearing this and hearing it clearly. God will not stand with those who stand against the poor. And God will stand against those who oppress, enslave and marginalise. And if I might widen the perspective slightly, in a story where it is the waters of the sea that enact God's judgment on the oppressor. I think nature itself echoes something of God's character. Where those who exploit the environment create a context where many will suffer as a consequence of their exploitation. Nature itself is resistant to exploitation. And the judgment on humanity, unlocked by the unfettered release of carbon or by habitat destruction or by overfishing, is a further consequence of imperial domination of the earth in our own time, as well as a revelation of God's judgment on those who destroy the earth. As the book of Revelation puts it, your judgment has come, the time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. But to return to the book of Exodus, eventually the people of Israel made their way through the Red Sea to the wilderness of Sinai to begin their journey to a new world. And what they discovered almost immediately was that the road to the promised land was not itself the promised land. Facing starvation in the desert, they turned their faces back towards Egypt and with rose-tinted spectacles remembered the storehouses of grain that had sustained them through the years of their enslavement. The truth is that it's not easy to leave empire. It's not easy to stand against injustice. It's always a journey of faith and will most likely be a costly journey. Our reading today doesn't go on to describe the manna from heaven that sustains them on their journey where each day they received just enough to live on but no more. 
but it's there in the story if we read ahead. We are each of us, individually and as a community, called to make our own journey out of Egypt. That's why I used that opening call to worship that I wrote some years ago. Out of Egypt, you have called your people. We remember that manner that sustained the people of Israel as we come to our communion service, as we will share the bread that will sustain us on our journey. We are called to make our own journey out of Egypt. We are each of us called to reckon with the judgment of God on our actions, our society and our world. And as those who are complicit in exploitation, we are called to think about what God's judgment might be for us. But we are also called to hope. God's judgment and God's mercy are two sides of the same coin. We are called to hope to a conviction that a better world is possible. We are the body of Christ in our world and we may be broken but we are also remembered. We are remade as we share bread and wine around a table where all are welcome. And this is the symbol and sign of the new world that God is bringing into being. And so we will eat and drink, taking into our bodies the harvest of the world. And as we do so, we must also, as St Paul puts it, examine ourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. This is a meal of mercy and grace, but it is also a meal that calls us to judgment. This is not to say, of course, that we have to be perfect before we can gather around the table of the Lord. Far from it. Thank God none of us would ever come. But we do need to gather in recognition of our complicity in the sins of the world, ready to repent of our sins, ready to receive forgiveness and new life. And it is this gift of new life, this calling onwards, that will bring us through the seemingly impossible barriers of whatever the Red Sea is for us. Through whatever sins, addictions and weaknesses are trying to keep us enslaved in Egypt or to take us back to somewhere we thought we had left. The bread and the wine sustain us and call us on. And so as we share in the body of Christ, we are remade as the body of Christ. A community of hope, called together to be the first fruits of the new humanity. The first fruits of the great harvest of all the earth. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you that you hear our collective prayers and you understand the deepest needs of our hearts. Lord, we pray for our church here at Bloomsbury. 
we give thanks that for some, life at present is contented. For some, however, life is worrying. And for some, the future is uncertain for them or for those whom they love. And we ask for them courage. Lord, we pray for the worldwide church. In a post-Christian era, we pray that whatever denomination, the people of Christ will stand strong and speak out for justice, for kindness, and for inclusivity. We remember, too, the 340 million Christians who live in countries where Christians may be persecuted for their faith, and we ask for them bravery. We pray for those who in this country dread the onset of winter due to rising energy and food costs. Lord, we pray for our planet, so small in the vastness of the universe, yet so beset by problems that its long-term future seems precarious. We pray that the countries of the world might unite in the common goal of combating climate change, war, and oppression. We pray for Pakistan, for the government there, that they might continue to make plans for those who have lost homes, family members, and possessions, to give them a future and a hope. And for those in Florida and the Carolinas, who more recently have faced the violent force of Hurricane Ian. At this time of the age-old celebration of harvest in the church, we're conscious that here in the middle of London, we're remote from the beauty and the importance of the season. But we pray for those farmers who have been affected by the summer drought and for those unsure of their future as a result of government regulations. We pray too for the farmers in Ukraine whose output has been affected by war, with repercussions not just in their own country, but also for global food prices. And finally, to use the reassuring words from a hymn by G.W. Briggs, through the rise and fall of nations, one sure faith is standing fast. God abides in word unchanging, God the first and God the last. Amen. And now to him who was able to keep you from falling, to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. <laughs> 